0: Chapter 30 of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Frances Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 30 resumes hospital work. Her last duties connected with the war at an end. Miss Dix, now 65 years old, took up once again her old asylum work, never relaxing in the fidelity with which she pursued it till at the age of eighty she retired incapacitated for further service to the shelter gratefully tendered her by the board of managers of the asylum in Trenton, New Jersey, her firstborn child that the impoverishment wrought by war in the southern and southwestern states must have left all institutions of charity in a deplorable condition, she was clearly enough convinced. But the old glad welcome with which she had once been cheered in her work there, was it not over forever, love turned to hate, blessing to reviling and cursing? fully had she herself shared the consuming wrath with which sensitive natures were in those days inflamed and unsparingly had she denounced what had seemed to her the wanton wickedness of the action of the south When, in the course of her duties as superintendent of nurses, she had had to receive back and care for great bodies of Union soldiers just released from the southern prisons, starved to skeletons and idiotic with the misery they had undergone, it had seemed to her, in the bitterness of her soul, that she could never again shake hands with those she had once so warmly loved great then was her surprise and delight at finding that in her case at least an exception was made to the vindictive feelings inevitably engendered by war the old memories of love and admiration had survived as fresh as ever and the old sense of grateful dependence on her for services no one else could render found immediate, imploring expression, just as in bygone days. Yes, the condition of things was deplorable, all told her, but to whom could they look for help but to her? From the large number of beseeching letters that now came to her, limitations of space forbid more than the selection of a single typical example. An example, however, which pathetically illustrates the grief felt by devoted friends of the insane over the ruin that had been wrought in the South, and which at the same time testifies to the yearning of heart with which their old-time benefactor was looked to for aid. The extracts given are from a letter of Mr. Alfred Huger of Charleston, South Carolina. Though not written till the beginning of 1870, the letter shows the thankfulness awakened in so many minds by the bare fact that Miss Dix was now once more on the field. Quote, Charleston, South Carolina, January 31st, 1870. My dear madam, I have just heard of your arrival at Columbia. The past, the present, and the future are by this announcement grouped before me. It is the instinct of the afflicted to be aroused and encouraged when your name is mentioned. Ruin and desolation hold their court among us. Our poor little state is sinking under a weight of calamity and of woe. Our temples are draped in mourning, and our hearts are in the dust. Still, we flock to the altar where the High Priestess is there. I was one of the founders of the Lunatic Asylum. Everywhere and at all times I have watched its progress. During the war I was in daily, almost hourly interchange with our valued friend Dr. Parker and with that household of wounded minds over which he presides, and, as we believe, doing so with a holy purpose. Dr. Parker is the father, brother, and friend, the very shield and buckler of our stricken brethren. We have heard, like a summons to meet death, of his possible removal, and we have heard also of your providential advent, If the authorities that rule over us select this man as a victim, or if Dr. Parker himself can endure his surroundings no longer, then there is agony upon us. And may we not appeal to you for succor and for help. We look to you both as the Visegerents of our Father who is in heaven, and we cannot look in vain, and we must not look in vain and we will not look in vain. Dr. Parker has no equal in our state for the position he occupies. You have no superior, with your mission signed in the high chancery of heaven and witnessed by angels who do justice and love mercy. In this hour of our trial, a word of information or of consolation from you would be a boon And a blessing. Faithfully and with profound respect, Alfred Huger. To appreciate the desolation of spirit that finds vent in the above letter, it is necessary to call to mind the actual condition of things then prevailing in South Carolina the state was under the control of a legislature packed almost solid with brutal plantation negroes the influential leaders who swayed them were largely carpet-bag politicians from the north the picturesque title then given to a class of rapacious adventurers whose worldly possessions consisting solely in an extra shirt and a pair of socks could hardly as yet aspire to the dignity of a trunk later indeed they meant to have one and to have it packed full What would be the inevitable policy of such a legislature and such leaders toward a state insane asylum can readily be conceived? It would be to put in some ignorant, thievish black as steward, some greedy, half-educated white doctor as superintendent, and in the same way to dispose of the rest of the legitimate spoils of office." The condition of things was worse in South Carolina than in the other southern states. Still, something analogous to this was in danger of prevailing in them all. No wonder, then, that in the misery of his position, Dr. Parker should have written vehemently to Miss Dix in reply to a letter from her counseling patients. Patience, patience the regents of his asylum were half or two-thirds Negroes. They had apparently got wind of certain of the ways of Europe and had made the happy discovery of a new official genius, hitherto unknown, called the pluralist, on the strength of which discovery they had bestowed three offices in the asylum on a single person totally unfit, to discharge the duties of any one of them. On Dr. Parker's reporting the delinquencies of the man, the culprit had defiantly written to the regents, quote, Everything will go on well if you, the regents, can have your own way, but not if the superintendent is to have his, end quote. Happily, one Negro regent had the good sense to administer— in his own peculiar vernacular, the following sound rebuke quote, Well, Dr. H., the superintendent is the man to have his way. He is boss, and we will not have two bosses. End quote. At the close of his letter, Dr. Parker says quote, If anyone can save our cherished institution from ruin, you are the person. End quote. Now already, in the previous two years of 1868 and 1869, had Miss Dix been at work with her old success in the northern and middle states. Spite of war, the national population had been steadily growing. The demands, moreover, on such institutions as the Army and Navy Asylum in Washington had advanced a hundredfold through the vast increase of the military and naval forces. To help to meet all these new exigencies, her energies were taxed to the extreme, and at times there comes from her a cry of agony and despair. Resuming once again her old inspection of almshouses and jails, she finds the melancholy condition of things to which she had at the outset called such effective attention, renewing itself through the inadequacy of existing institutions to cope with the growth of population and the tide of immigration. It would seem she breaks out in sadness to her friend Mrs. Torrey, that all my work is to be done over so far as the insane are concerned, language is poor to describe the miserable state of these poor wretches in dungeon cells. I did not think I was to find here in this year eighteen sixty eight such monstrous abuses. still encouraging results continue to cheer her, thus May sixth eighteen sixty eight Professor Silliman writes her from New Haven, Connecticut, quote, It is just two years this month since you came here to move this matter, and now the first patients are in the new hospital building. How much we all owe you for your timely aid, courage, and energy, without which this noble work would not have been undertaken, certainly for many years and it was all done so quietly. The springs of influence were touched in a way which shows how possible it is to do great and noble things in public assemblies without a lobby or the use of money. Equally in Washington does she meet a like success, while of Pennsylvania she can write, "'Tomorrow I go to the northeastern district of the state "'to find a farm of 300 acres for a third hospital, "'for which I have got an appropriation of $200,000.'" Quote. It was well that the encouraging stimulus of yearly success should thus come to the woman nearing the age of 70 on whose shoulders such a burden rested, One by one, she now took up the cause of the many asylums she had founded, laboring indefatigably toward their restoration and enlargement and toward infusing into the minds of new legislatures liberal and rational ideas on the whole subject of the treatment of insanity. From many an old asylum, too. In full tide of prosperity, there now came to her grateful remembrances. Quote, I trust, wrote to her in 1871, Mr. John Harper, treasurer of the Dixmont Hospital in Pennsylvania, when the warm weather comes, you will visit Dixmont and see for yourself what a monument for humanity has been erected and put into prosperous operation through your foresight and exertions. Do you remember the day in my room in the bank when you urged the establishment of a new rural hospital and Judge blank opposed you so bitterly? The judge was a man of great eloquence and influence, but you beat him to his astonishment." End quote. Earlier, too, on the occasion of the presentation of a portrait of Mystics to this same Dixmont Asylum by an unknown citizen of Pennsylvania, had Mr. Harper written the donor, quote, You know, sir, in the olden time, each institution sacred to charity had its patron saint. The Dixmont Hospital Notwithstanding our Protestant and iconoclastic ideas, has a patroness whom we respect and love, indeed, who is canonized in our affections quite as strongly as were saintly ladies in the medieval age. The mission of Our Lady is to create those noble institutions which aid in the restoration of the dethroned reason." and Dixmont Hospital is one of the jewels which will adorn her crown hereafter." End quote. Enough has now been said to illustrate the nature of the work that was to engage Miss Dix to the end of her active days. Farther to particularize would be but to weary the reader with a bare catalogue of achievements, each indeed fraught with some shape of succor to the miserable, but as a catalogue a mere burden to the mind. From Maine to Texas, from New York to San Francisco, she is henceforth perpetually on the wing. The asylums scattered throughout the length and breadth of the land have become to her her children. How they are faring is the one thought of her heart. Everywhere. On her arrival, the keys of the wards are freely handed to her, and she is allowed to wander round alone. She is recognized as a lunacy commission in herself, so admirable a one, indeed, that even so late a date as 1877, when she was then 75 years of age, Dr. Charles F. Folsom, of Boston, Massachusetts, could say of her in his Diseases of the Mind, quote, her frequent visits to our institutions of the insane now and her searching criticisms constitute of themselves a better lunacy commission than would be likely to be appointed in many of our states, quote. The inevitable infirmities of age are now growing on her, She is more silent and concentrated, more abrupt and imperative, more the embodiment of habit than of the earlier spontaneity and enthusiasm which once irresistibly swept the legislatures of 20 states before her. But her intellectual perceptions are as clear and acute as ever. Nothing escapes her eye, whether to be commended as meritorious or taken exception to as faulty. No fear or favor sways her a hair. Alike in the asylum of her earliest superintendent friend or in that of the latest appointee, she feels that it is the question of the best good for the stricken and miserable that is to dominate her own mind and the minds of all. Inevitably was there something trying to the heads of asylums in the sudden and unexpected visitations of this exceptional woman and her equally sudden departures. She was the organized and embodied conscience of the highest ideals of asylum management, with a searching power of intellect and character that few could encounter without a lurking feeling of dread. The older members of the profession, who for long years had known the inestimable value of her services to the cause they stood for, understood that no criticism would escape her that was not dictated by the inmost sense of justice and kindness, and farther, that a vast experience lay behind it that would make it worthy of their best consideration. But many of the newer men in the newer states, who knew not Joseph, felt inclined to take exception to the quiet but irresistible air of authority with which this woman, of no outward official position, would arrive, see all and judge all, and perhaps, without a word of comment, leave them feeling that alike the good and bad had been weighed in the scales, "'of even-handed justice. "'A few even were there "'who were disposed to make merry "'over this self-constituted lunacy commission "'in the person of a single aged woman. "'The story is told of her once going into an asylum "'where she called for a trial "'of the fire-extinguishing apparatus. "'It proved to be out of order and useless.' and she spoke some words of stern rebuke. Later, it became the habit of some of the younger doctors, of a supposedly humorous turn of mind, to refer to this incident as furnishing the matter of an exquisitely funny story. Vastly pleasant did they seem to find it to expatiate on the consternation the old lady had caused by her appalling demonstration that the whole elaborate system for saving the buildings from conflagration was absolutely worthless. A vastly amusing story, no doubt, and yet one can hardly avoid charitably wishing that a select few of such humorously minded young doctors might be compelled to serve an apprenticeship on a canard or white star steamship. What would they witness there? This, that the instant a certain signal is sounded, whether in the dead of night or at break of day, or when dinner or supper is in full tide, every waiter, every bedroom steward, every deckhand, every officer, drops on the spot, whatever he is at, and runs with lightning speed to take his appointed place at the pumps or at the handling of the hose. Should it then turn out, even on this mere formal review, that the fire apparatus would not work, It is easy to imagine the nature of the reception at the captain's hands any responsible officer would get, who showed a disposition to regard the miscarriage as a capital joke. Miss Dix had had too fearful experience of insane asylums burning to the ground and of scores of wretched victims perishing, not to feel that such a failure ought to be branded on the spot as guilt and crime. Footnote. Even as this biography is going through the press, there comes from Montreal, Canada, the news of the total destruction by fire of an immense insane asylum there, in which one hundred miserable victims were roasted alive. The asylum was provided with a complete fire extinguishing apparatus. Only, as it turned out, the hose was disconnected from the pumps and the wrench mislaid. Before connection could be made, the flames had got too much headway to be arrested. End footnote. Perhaps then a fairer, and more discriminating picture can hardly be drawn of the salutary impression left by these comings and goings of mystics on minds kindred and moral earnestness with her own than is found in the ensuing letter of mrs harriet c curlin wife of the superintendent of the institution for feeble-minded children at elwyn pennsylvania quote Among our many visitors, there has never been one so ready to praise the good found and so agreeably to reprove mistakes or failures. This may not always have been her characteristic, but surely we met only the gentle, considerate side of her nature, so that when Dr. Curlin said, Miss Dix, won't you come up to see where our teachers have rooms? Her reply Oh, no, doctor, I have never found any suffering among officers of an institution. was so frankly and half-wittily spoken, it carried no offensive sarcasm. If she were found at five o'clock a.m. in an unusual place, watching the early movements of our large family, her kindly manner of telling what she had seen, right or wrong, made us feel that sympathy with the superintendents prompted her desire for as perfect management as possible, and that no spirit of pleasure in spying out wrong had caused her unexpected early walk. She never gossiped about the weakness or faults of others. Her judgment was given with consideration of accompanying circumstances. Her language, voice, and manner were thoroughly gentle and ladylike, yet so strong was she in intelligence and womanhood that at times I ranked her alone and above all other women. Quote. The picture drawn in this letter of the inexorable fidelity tempered with kindness and gentleness of Miss Dix, weighed in connection with the fire apparatus story and her terrible power of rebuke, when rebuke was demanded, will serve together to call up a vivid idea of the manner of woman she was in these last years of her active life. Pleasanter it no doubt was to receive the visitation of duly appointed state inspectors who would beam graciously and ignorantly on the excellent condition in which they found everything, take a glass of wine in the medicinal room of the establishment, and then adjourn to a good dinner. But this was not mystics's way. From the hour in which the terrible abyss of human suffering had been opened to her, and a sacred voice within had summoned her to consecrate her life to the service of these miserable ones, Her faith had never wavered that God had eternally ordained her for this special mission. It was to be no child's play, but a stern and awful ordeal. Every day made it clearer to her that eternal vigilance is the price of justice and mercy toward these outcasts of the world. End of chapter 30